you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't. All right. Welcome back to Check This, Please, a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please because we started doing it when there was a pandemic happening and it's October and nothing's changed. Today, we will be discussing comic strip number 2.8, Parse, part two, which was originally posted on February 2nd, 2015. I'm Secret, and I am joined by my fellow mistress of displeasure. Hi, I'm Tomato. I do love to be displeased. Let's talk about it. In a voiceover, predominantly over flashback images, Ransom and Holster explain Kent Parson. He is probably tied for best living hockey player, the face of the Aces franchise, and from the jersey he's seen wearing, also their captain. He was also an intimate of Jack's in their junior hockey days, and alongside a picture of Kent sitting on Jack's lap at a party, we're told there were rumors about their rumors. They're also shown back-to-back -back with the Canadian Hockey League's Memorial Cup, the implication being that they were instrumental in their teams winning it. They were the best pair the hockey world had seen, we're told. But when Kent was drafted by the Aces and Jack ended up in rehab instead of the NHL, they drifted apart. Also, Ransom and Holster looked up a bunch of RPS fic about them. Biddy tries to find Jack, but runs into Shitty on the porch instead. This isn't the first visit Kent Parsons made, Shitty explains. Last time, Jack got really jealous, and the way he treated Kent freaked Shitty out. Kind of like how he used to treat you, Shitty notes. It seems like Biddy's about to tweet something, and Shitty tells him not to. I'm going to put this thing in my room before I tweet something stupid, Biddy says, and Shitty reminds him to lock up his room before someone staggers in there to barf. It's too late for Shitty, however, as Lardo arrives to announce that his room has already been puked in, and she's just beaten Kent Parson at Slipcup. Everything is very exciting. That's all I, that's my opening statement. All right, well, I think the reason why everything is so exciting is because this strip, at the same time, gives so much information, it is dense with information, but it's all extremely vague, and completely open-ended. And I think that's a combination that would drive people fucking crazy. Oh, and guess what? It did, and it still does! I mean, the thing that's really fascinating about this, right, is that this is, like, information we have been waiting on tenterhooks for since the fucking hockey prints. So, like, this is a year later, and all of a sudden, this bounty of information about Jack Zimmerman's, like, juicy past and this new character who I do care about <laughs> uh, also suddenly bursts onto the scene after having been sort of seated, you know, in several strips before that, as we've discussed. And what I would like to posit, because we're going to kind of keep talking about, I think, the way that Kent Parson is introduced and why um, he makes me personally feel like I need to put my head through a piece of drywall. And the reason is in part because of how fucking fanficable, if you will, this kind of open-ended, extremely informational, and yet completely vague backstory is. All of a sudden, I have expositional information about J. 
Jack and Kent's history and who Kent is now in a way that is really tantalizing. At the same time, there's no emotional information or very little emotional information other than Jack's jealousy. But we get to see little hints of it that are fillable via fanfic when you look at the expressions on Kent and Jack's faces and you look at how they're interacting in these sort of like hockey prince-like, Disney-like images. It is completely maddening in the best way. Yeah, it's the way that the text supports the images and the images support the text, specifically within the kind of like flashback panels in this strip. And it's very similar to what we said about the hockey prints, where the text and the image are working both together and almost separately. Right, and I think this one is even more tightly done because you have the juxtapositions between what Shitty is saying, or whoever is saying, I mean, it's like, it's hard to tell who's saying what actually in this, in this multi-vocal story being told about Jack, but you have what Ransom Holster and Shitty are saying about this bat past, and then you have this tension between the rivalry and friendship that are both being painted by what's being said, and then like whatever's going on in the images, which seems more complicated even than a friendship and rivalry. What we're actually given here, Ken Parson is set up as one of hockey's current best players, and if you read what's said in this strip, like literally, potentially one of its best players of all time. So he is on a 31-game point streak. Again, for people who are following who are not like 100% hockey, Points do not equal goals. A point can also be given for assists or whatever. So it doesn't mean he's scored in every single game. However, he has racked up a point, at least one, in the last 31 games of the season. Or maybe actually extending back because it's only December at this point. So... Uh, other people actually on Tumblr have written pretty good, um, like, explainer posts about what this means in terms of, like, Kent Parsons' hockey career. So some of this is built upon work that other people have done. But the current records for all-time uh, point streaks are led by Wayne Gretzky with 51 games, followed by Mario Lemieux with 46 and then Gretzky again at 39. And if Kent Parson were real, he would be number four. And two of those are the same guy. So he would basically be in at least this metric, like the third most accomplished NHL player of all time. And of current hockey players, like people currently playing, Kane and Crosby are on the list with 26 and 25 game points streaks respectively. And then there are a few other current players and actually Kane a second time, maybe also Crosby a second time, kind of like much lower down that list. So if you think of like who the like best players in the NHL right now are, Kent Parson is set up to be better than all of them as well. And I also want to add, I'm not a hockey play expert, so I can't go into details because I really don't understand all of the details. But the style of play that is currently in the NHL um, and of which Kent Parson is presumably a part is pretty different than the style of play 
during Gretzky and Lemieux's kind of apex of their careers, which were at a time when it was um, more common to score more goals and get more points per game. So this is like very impressive. If we take this at face value, it is very impressive in the current style of gameplay. Yeah. And Ken Parson in this strip later on, Shitty mentions, he's said to have won the Calder. That is the award that is given out for the NHL's Rookie of the Year. So to Dex's point a couple strips ago in Hazapalooza about Jack should have gone first, not Kent Parson. On what planet would you not want to draft this player in retrospect if you had the first pick? And his team has won a Stanley Cup, we also find out, uh, actually, in uh, that strip that's mostly course codes, the one where they're baking in the kitchen, like women's gender and sexuality studies, et cetera, et cetera. He's won a Stanley Cup with his team. So it's not like he's a hyper-talented player who went first to a shitty team, and then he's still kind of bouncing around with that team. It's like he basically won them a Stanley Cup because a first draft pick would have gone to a pretty bad team who, let's see, he was drafted in 2009. In a five-year period, he's taken them from literally the worst team in the league to the best team in the league. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a crazy statement not to, like, go back and assess, like, where Dex's brain is. But, yeah, obviously this is somebody you would, you would pick first. Especially if the other potential first draft pick is uh, not available. Or if for some reason you – we can't actually know. We don't get enough information to know who was – better in the Ramuski days. And it actually seems like they were, were neck and neck. They're just different styles of player, it seems. At least this is the impression I get. But it is a banana statement to be like, oh, you, you're so much better than that other guy who's like one of the best NHL players of all time, at least by certain standards. So I think we have to assume that Dex is not only three sheets to the wind, but is admiring Jack's ass for more than its hockey qualities, maybe to totally make sense of that statement, if you know what I mean. I do know what you mean. But to that point, I think the, you know, Zimmerman or Parson, who will go first, I think the reading to make of that is that it's completely irrelevant. It's a pointless, pointless question that could only be contrived by a sports media hype environment. And what I will say is that despite Dex's appreciation for what Jack should have had, and despite Jack's thoughts maybe about what Jack should have had, as we discover in this strip, everyone on the SMH team is pretty psyched about Ken Parson showing up. Everyone's flipping out about his presence and wanting to get selfies with him and wanting to, you know, play flip cup with him or whatever. So he's, he's a pretty big deal. The last line of the first panel of the strip, that's who everyone is talking about. So yeah, like the implication here is that everyone at the party is buzzing about Kent Parson. And maybe he's just a general topic of conversation like out in the world because he's so famous and successful. But here's what's so fucking insane about that. It's also a meta comment about how people in Check Please fandom are talking about Ken Parson. So like, here's a, a point of order. When we recorded 2.5, the Providence Falconers strip where George is introduced, we talked about how the blog noted that Kent was a hoopla generator. 
And in retrospect, I think that may be a reference to the fact that this party is supposedly taking place on the night of December 14th, 2014. The comic we're currently reading is being posted in February, but that's not what I'm talking about. 2.5 Providence Falconers was posted after December 14th. It was posted actually on Christmas, on December 25th. So, Biddy has already tweeted about Kent Parson and also a picture of himself with Kent Parson where he is infusing about Kent Parson. So that would have already like become available 11 days prior to the Providence Falconer strip where Ngozi writes in the blog post that Kent Parson is a hoopla generator. My point is the events of this comic strip have already been posted via Biddy's Twitter for readers in the fandom who are following that Twitter. So like, yes, he is a hoopla genre, et cetera, et cetera. And I will also say that like, I think in retrospect, this is really interesting, right? Because if you take on a generous reading, the statement that we never were supposed to be interested in Ken Parson and he was never supposed to be a big part of the comic, which we discussed previously during our discussion of Parson 1. If we take that at face value and kind of like take it as, you know, what, as the comic should have been, this is a really, really, really ineffective way of making people not care about a character. Like tweeting about him, getting everyone psyched about some mysterious event that happens at the party that leads to some like, because I remember Epic Hexter, I remember the tweets. I was like fucking, cramming the Twitter down my throat at that point. And I remember getting really excited and not sure about what happened and trying to figure out because Biddy has some kind of like emotional tweet, which is, um, uh, which is very vague. And so we didn't know some, we knew something happened, but didn't know what it was. Then you get this introduction of Kent and then you finally get what actually happens at the kegster. And it's this really exciting character who's given a Disney Prince backstory, who's given all the characters in the comic strip talking about him. This is like not an effective way to avoid building excitement around both a character himself and then what that character represents and the mystery surrounding that character. In fact, it does just the opposite. It makes you real fucking excited about that character and the mystery surrounding him and who he was to Jack Zimmerman, so on and so forth. If you wanted to introduce this character but didn't want people to speculate about like the romantic quality of his relationship to Jack, this was also the wrong way to do it. So all I can say is that it seems to me that it was very carefully engineered to create a lot of excitement around this character and uh, if it wasn't done on purpose then there were a lot of again strange narrative decisions that didn't work that way yeah so the timestamps on the tweets on the check please tumblr are a little weird but basically the sequence of events are biddy overhears somebody saying oh my fucking god that's fucking kent parson and he attributes it to some drunk Lax bro, in parentheses, probably. He follows it up to say, no, sweetheart, that's Jack Zimmerman. Then a few tweets later, he says, oh, it was Kent Parson. Lord, I'm getting starstruck, which we saw him tweeting in the previous strip. Then he says, I shouldn't have had any of that tub juice. This is just too much. Then he says, all right, I'm going to do it. Wish me luck. Then three minutes later, he writes, had to get a picture with NHL star Kent Parson, and he tags it, Samwell University, typical Samwell party, Epic Hexter, NHL. 
OMG, check please. And then this is that famous picture of, I mean, famous, famous worldwide of Biddy with Kent Parsons. Then he follows that up by, by writing, he's so nice with like five explanation points, all caps. Then five minutes later, he tweets, where is Jack? Then like the next morning, he writes, well, the frog survived. So I can only imagine the tone of these tweets happening on like the night of December 14th. Like this crazy party, things are happening. Oh my God, it's Ken Parson. Frothing about it over several tweets. They take a picture together. He's so nice. Where is Jack? Dead silence. It was fucking wild. <laughs> like, I was reading Twitter. As this was happening, I was refreshing Twitter and I was losing my goddamn mind. Like, I was completely losing it. This was really immersive and really exciting. That's what made this so successful, even though there were limitations to the multi-platform storytelling. I can compare this with another effort at multi-platform storytelling around the same time, The Lizzie Bennet Diaries. I don't know if any of you ever watched it. It is probably the most effective like YouTube version of some classic literature, after which there were a bunch of different versions and most of them are bad, but this one is pretty good in the video part of it. However, the other attempts at multi-platform storytelling, because they were also using, I think, Tumblr, and then they were also using Twitter, but because it was not truly interactive, it was really bad. Like, the, the videos were great, but the tweets were garbage, as eventually became, in my opinion, the check please tweets. Once they stopped being interactive, they stopped being really exciting. But during this time, at the height of the tweet's efficacy, when they were legitimately interactive, it felt like you were watching a character go through real time, and you saw the arrival of Ken Parson, you saw a bunch of hoopla about it. Indeed, hoopla, created by Ngozi herself. You saw hoopla created for us to flip out about. And then there's Where is Jack? And then radio silence. It was crazy. These are the kinds of gaps into which fanfic, like, explodes. Because it's really effective storytelling strategy, right? You get everyone invested and then you leave a gap. This is something Ngozi has used throughout Check, Please, all seven years of it, to greater and lesser efficacy over the years and often ultimately to like explosive conclusions in the bad way. But in this particular case, it was like mind blowing. And then when the actual comic strip came out and we found out what had happened, it was satisfying and the whole fandom fucking lost their minds, like completely lost their minds. So back reading or thinking about why Kent Parson became what Kent Parson became, which is something that we're very interested in here at the old Check This Please podcast, I think you have to look at this strip through the eyes of somebody who had already seen this tweeted about, right? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Well, what I said was so smart. Um, I'm sorry. I was listening and then I got distracted by looking at this picture of Betty and Kent Parson. So it's not that you cut out. It's that my brain stopped working. Okay, listen, here's what I want to say. I didn't know when to introduce this, but like something I have seen several people say on like catty, like parse positive discourse servers is that that picture of Biddy and Kent Parson is so fucked up because they look like they're two different species. And <laughs> <laughs> just honestly, I heard somebody say that and I was just like, oh my God. Then I will say in Ngozi's defense, I showed that picture to my friend Nahangan, 
who did our like cover art. And I repeated that comment and she was like, no, they look like they're the same species. And I was like, but look at the eyes. And she was like, no, you can tell that Ken Parson has the same size eyes. It's just that he has eyelids, so they look normal. And I was like, but yes, I mean, <laughs> that's it, isn't it? And she was like, no, I think they look like they're the same species. So art is subjective. Not everybody thinks they're two different species. But that's just one of the more astute comments I've ever seen anybody make on uh, a, piece of, a piece of art. And I work in the arts. <laughs> they, you know what? Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> I, I don't know what it will say about me if I, if I weigh in on this. Uh, what did you say before that, that I got so distracted staring into Kent Parsons' multicolored eyes and having emotions? Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Oh, I think what I said basically was that in order to understand why Kent Parson became what he became in a metatextual fandom sense, you have to read these strips with the background knowledge that most people reading the strip for the first time would have already seen these events tweeted about and would have had something like a month and a half. Yeah. Or... I don't know, several weeks, I, I can't do calendar math, sorry world, to basically speculate on what had happened. And then you're getting not the whole story, but a different, also vague and amorphous piece of the story that doesn't really neatly fit into or explain, but does sort of like enhance and exacerbate what had already been tweeted. Like, that's why this is so fucking maddening. Like, that's why... Like, it's to a certain extent hypocritical for the author to act as if she doesn't understand why people are so excited about Kent Parson. And the thing is, like, I don't know. I guess it's possible that she never intended this. But even if it was an unintentional side effect, which I don't think it was, but let's say it was, even if it was, you've got to understand how people operate, like how fandom is, like what storytelling mechanisms like get people like really excited. It's not just characters who don't have a lot of background are exciting because you can write whatever you want about them. It's characters who have not a full background, but a spotty background and the parts that you do have are like scintillating. That's what it is. I think you said it best last time. I think it does a disservice to Ngozi as a writer to suggest that this character was not designed to garner interest. Obviously, she changed her mind. Obviously, she didn't want to write about him anymore. And like, that's fine. And that's her prerogative as an author. But I think it does a real disservice to her art and to her writing, particularly this tightly written, beautiful strip to suggest that it was done accidentally or haphazardly. To me, this is very tightly constructed. You do not put in the line, that's who everyone is talking about, if you don't want to reinforce that everyone is talking. You just don't. You don't. Why? Like, there are so many ways to make Ken Parson not important to the story. Here they are. One, you don't write about him at all. Two, you mentioned him a few times, he never shows up on screen. Three, he shows up on screen, but he shows up on screen in a fairly unexciting way. He and Jack have, you know, some kind of conversation and he goes about his business. Four, you give them some kind of resolution on screen. People won't want to write about it anymore, especially in this early period of Check, Please fandom. I was not yet writing fanfic, but I was starting, this was around the time I was starting to check out Check, Please fandom. 
Um, I didn't get really into it until after Jack and Biddy kissed, but before that I was like looking at it, you know, and the whole early fandom was entirely fueled by speculation. What would happen and what had happened. Those were the things people were writing about. That's not so much the case anymore, but that was for the first several years of fandom, like primarily what people were doing. And to, and and Ngozi is clearly, as we've established and as she herself makes obvious, like she's really aware of fandom and like her fandom specifically, she helped build her fandom by making platforms for it and so on and so forth. Like she knows how fandom works. I think it's also a disservice to Ngozi to suggest he does not. And you don't provide for a character an unresolved past if you don't want people to speculate about that character fandom-wise, if you know that you have an active fandom. So if Ken Parson had shown up in screen and then been like, okay, bye, Jack, a Jack would have been like, okay, bye. Like no one would have been excited about it. So every single thing about this was like calculated to make people froth at their mouth about Gent Parson is what I was about to say. What a gentleman <laughs> about Ken Parson. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. I don't know the lyrics of You're So Vain enough to... I recognize them, but I can't say them. Oh, you had me several years ago when I was still quite naive when you said we made such a pretty pair and that you would never leave. I was literally, like, making notes on this yesterday and, like, listening to this song, thinking, like, oh, it's perfect. But then there's all this stuff that doesn't make any sense, like, about a Learjet and horse racing. Forget about it. Don't worry. It's worth noting that this conversation we're having about what Beatty tweeted and what's going on with multi-platform storytelling does sort of expose the flaws or the chaotic aspects of multi-platform storytelling that the Twitter is recording what Biddy is up to and I'm making little air quotes Biddy up to in real time like regardless of whether the comic has caught up to it yet and of course the comic and the Twitter have never been on the same page we're like six weeks or eight weeks or something ahead with the Twitter. So if you need to document Kent Parson coming in, to a certain extent, it's like unintentional that he's going to get this buzz. If what you want to tell in your story is about how Kent Parson showed up, unfortunately, this like multi-platform storytelling mechanism is to a certain extent going to create some hoopla just because of the fact that like you're drawing more slowly than you have to be tweeting. But something I want to raise about this point about that's who everyone's talking about is that I think this is kind of an interesting statement or an interesting line to interrogate in light of what I think is the comic's broader apparent stance that like talking about people is bad. And my case for this is that I do think there is a through line that all of the gossip about Jack, like just in the world and also on campus, is bad and is harmful. And that the way that sportscasters and like sports commentators talk about and speculate on him is also bad and harmful. I think perhaps some of like Biddy's virtue as a partner for Jack is that he doesn't know anything about Jack. Like, he's completely ignorant. He's a completely blank slate. So in that sense, like, in contrast to Kent Parson, but also in contrast to everybody, he doesn't know, doesn't have, like, a preconceived concept of who Jack is when they first meet. And I think that's probably something that, like, 
in a Watsonian sense would be appealing to Jack, but I think in a Doyleist sense, it's like that's one of the reasons why Biddy is a good partner for him. But there's also all this other like little stuff that pops into the comic. For example, in year four, there's a moment where the waffles are getting like fined for speculating on Jack and Biddy's relationship. And then there's also this like general sort of tone around the swallow which Jack was talking about in the previous strip, how the swallow covered a previous epic kegster. The swallow is basically like a college-specific, like tabloid. It's basically like a like an Us Weekly for Samwell. And there's this sort of tone around the swallow as if it's like shady or sketchy or not okay about the way in which the swallow covers campus. And you made a point about how there's something kind of hypocritical and discordant in the text as well. Yeah, as you're talking about this, I see the through line and I totally agree that it's there. But at the same time, certain kinds of conversations seem okay. Like Biddy regularly talks about Jack on his vlog by name, including how Jack is an asshole to him. And that's never questioned or troubled. Do you know what I mean? If I were Jack and I didn't want sportscasters talking about my public career, I probably also wouldn't want this like freshman dweeb talking about how I was mean to him. Do you know what I mean? So Biddy, by his virtue of being the protagonist, I guess, is excused for talking about the private lives of people around him, whereas other people and venues aren't. I also think there's something complicated that we can keep talking about too, about how kind of like all speculation is treated as bad when sometimes when you do something really big and crazy, like say kiss your boyfriend on the ice after winning the Stanley Cup, that might lead to understandable speculation. And that speculation is also treated as irresponsible in ways that I don't fully know that I agree with. So I think it's worth exploring and thinking about the way that gossip has talked about here. There's something that I can't quite resolve. There's multiple narratives about it, I guess. But the through line is absolutely there. Well, what's interesting is that at the back end of this strip, actually, there's a moment where Shitty tells Biddy not to tweet about what's going on. Right. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll go put my phone away. And that's what causes him to go upstairs to put his phone away and lock his room up. But... You know, what I think is really interesting, and maybe this is part of what I plan to talk about when we do Parse 3 next time, is that Ken Parson knows everything about Jack. That's part of what I guess the comic is saying in a weird sort of like disconnected way. That's what makes him like not a good fit for Jack. That's why they can't be friends anymore. That's why they can't be together. Like he knows too much. He was too present. He's too aware of what happened. And he's able to use it in a way that, I mean, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, is construed as mean. And I guess it is mean. But we'll talk about that more next time. However, I think we've done a pretty good job like resisting saying like, well, this is how Ngozi comports herself in her like public statements on this comic. Ergo, it's okay to like read this comic through sort of like, I don't know, her viewpoints. But I do think that part of my feeling about what this comic 
says about like gossip and talking about other people and like speculation does kind of come through her position on things, which is very much like you ought not speculate on what's going to be in this comic. I will tell you, you should not make judgments. I am the author. I will tell you what's going to happen and how to read and how to feel about it. And likewise, there are a lot of things that she just doesn't address. And there's a lot of talk both in the fandom and sometimes from her about how it's harmful to openly discuss things. And I'm not even necessarily saying it isn't, but I think some of this like informs how I'm reading this particular thread in Check, Please. Oh, I agree. And I also think that that became more and more and more pronounced later on. Because last time, or in the, in the women's and gender studies and blah, 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 blah comic, two strips ago, we talked about how Ngozi was not enough willing to kind of dictate, okay, this is the comic and here's how it works. Here are the parts to it and here's what you should read. We see a shift over time as she becomes perhaps like too interested in controlling how people interact with and read the comic. I also think it's worth thinking about like, where is she in relationship with her audience? At this point, she's still building up fandom. She's still actively promoting fandom. The comic structure has not yet changed because of fandom reaction at least again this is like my thought about how this will go down and we can talk about it as we read but she still has a fairly different relationship with her fandom than she does like a couple years later so it might be interesting also to see how the conversation around i don't know gossip and speculation shifts and how ngozi's framing of how we should read the comic shifts too Though she is still very controlling because she does the call and responses in the blog post. She does the sort of like hammering home of themes. I don't know. But then at other points, there's just like reading she will not dictate or will not control. Like I have on occasion, well, not recently just because everything's been nuts, but I have gone to her live streams and something that she consistently says to fans when they ask questions about things is like, I don't know if that's canon. I don't know if blah, blah, blah. And it can be about like even really generic things that don't even matter. You know, she'll just be like, "Uh, I don't know, whatever. It's whatever you feel like it is. And that can be kind of infuriating. But then that attitude starts to spill over into things where like, she never gives us the full background on what actually happened in Jack's backstory. Like what substances was he taking? And I guess now there's a little more commentary on this within the comic, but what was the nature of his overdose and what exactly was it that caused this to happen? And what exactly was the nature of his relationship with Kent Parson? In a blog post for a year three strip, she basically writes a little call and response like blog item that's like, they were dating. Well, not really. Or you know what? Maybe they were. And it's like, oh, okay, thanks. That's very helpful. And also I think with like Jack's sexuality, where it's like, not only has he never spoken about it in the comic, she's never confirmed it outside of the comic. And I feel like the, I don't know, feeling I get around some of these issues is that her attitude or maybe the comic's attitude generally is like, well, why do you even want to know? Does it matter? And it's like, well, on one hand, actually, I think that's a good question. I think 
why do I want to know is maybe something that's worth investigating. At the same time, come the fuck on. Well, I think the thing is, right, if this comic felt like it were making a more deliberate point about what you can't know, about what is unknowable, about what we don't have the right to ask of people, if it felt like it had a message beyond coming out is great and always works, right? Which is sort of, sorry, that's not a very um, a subtle way of encapsulating check, please. My apologies. No, but, actually, I think it is. But I mean, I think if this, like, I've, I've regretted this before on the podcast. Like, I think there was a potential to say something really interesting about YouTube and about kind of like internet notoriety and what being a public figure means, especially when you're not a celebrity, like like a normal celebrity, if you're a celebrity in these other venues or you're an internet celebrity, like I think there was a lot of potential here for the comic to discuss these things. And I think like I'm I'm fascinated because of Check Please, I have become fascinated with the stories that you can tell by refusing to address things and like what you can tell by sort of the outlines of issues or people who aren't there. What one might call an absent presence or a present absence if you're, you know, into lit theory. But it doesn't actually feel like Checklist is making a coherent point about this. And because of the aforementioned hypocrisy and hypocritical nature about who can talk about what and how, like there's no sort of glue bringing it all together. It's just this mishmash of like, well, you shouldn't talk about Jack and you reader shouldn't care about what happened to Jack. Oh, but I'm going to drop these tidbits that I know will get you excited, but I'm never going to tell you and it's nosy to ask. Like Jack Zimmerman's not a real person. The reason I care about what happened to him is because you told me I should care about what happened to him. Do you know what I mean? So like, it's, it's weirdly, it's not an effective commentary, I think on the prurience with which people approach matters like addiction and OD, which I think it could have been, but because of the way the story is structured, instead it just ends up punishing the reader for like our interest that was evoked by the structure of the story, which told us this is important information that will be revealed. You know what I mean? And in the paratext was also told us would be revealed. So it's like this very, I don't know, it's just tricky. I think that basically brings us to a section that I have called the Jack Parse Hole, which I don't like that. If I were editing this episode, I'd cut all of that. Okay. So basically this strip gives us the most background that we have about Jack and Kent and their prior relationship. We get some comments from Jack in a later strip, and there are a couple little tidbits like sewn through, but this is basically like the bulk of what people use to build out what we think we know about these two characters and their relationship. So we have a reference here to a no-look one-timer. So a no-look one-timer would be a single shot from one player to another, so from A to B, and then a second single shot from B to the goal without carrying the puck. So one, two, goal. So A passes to B without making eye contact. That's the no look. So this is obviously a very skilled move. It's very skilled and like very rare sort of, I don't know, hockey play. The implication is that a pair of line mates has to be so like metaphysically and spiritually connected to pull this off that they can like sense each other on the ice somehow. Like they know each other and they know each other's game that well. 
the patented bit, like the patented, like, you know, Noah look one timer kind of makes it sound like they did this more than once, if not like a lot, like it was something that they were known for doing, which I think is basically implying that they weren't just both really good hockey players. They were really good hockey players together and that they were really in sync and had an almost like preternatural understanding of each other, both as hockey players and as like people. Well, as you pointed out, one way to make this happen is quote, but sex will do that, I guess. And you know, I think it will. I think it does connect you on a metaphysical level. You know, sometimes. Not every kind of butt sex, but occasionally. You can really get somewhere on the ice with a little extra, you know, lubricant. What I will suggest about the way that this sex parse up in triangulation to Jack and Biddy, and I'll become kind of broken record about this and I apologize, but we also learn about someone else who improves Jack's play by being with him on the same line. It's another small blonde winger whose name is Eric Biddle. So we see Jack being set up in parallel to Kent at the same time that we see Biddy being set up parallel to Kent. That's also structurally part of why Kent Parson is so interesting. Those of us who are compelled by him as a character, I think that's part of what's compelling about him is that he's not just a foil to Jack. He's not just a rival. He's not just like an ex he's also being set up in some kind of parallel to Biddy. So it's, it's really, really interesting. Also, obviously, the butt sex is a parallel. I mean, look, I, I guess we're going to have to talk about butt sex eventually. So here's where I'll throw out that, like, look, I, obviously, I enjoy reading a good teenage Jack Pars, just, like, disgusting sex fic. Truly, feel free to write them for me. I would enjoy that very much. But, like, in reality, I do kind of feel skeptical that, like, two 17- or 18-year-olds would be having, like, that kind of sex or, indeed, even, like, frequent butt sex. It seems like a skill level beyond what two teenage hockey players would be capable of. One, agreed. Two, we've actually talked about this before and also how, like, as semi-professional hockey players, you, you can't mess around that much with things that might make it like hard to skate. So it might be something that if it happened at all, happened rarely. Just, you know, think about that. And obviously there's lots of ways to have sex. It needn't all be butt sex. No, you know, ear sex, toe sex. So many body parts can get involved. Look, I, I don't know if you know this, but like a foot job, like a foot job is like a real thing. And um, oh, yeah. I read Jack's about it. Bring it to me. Okay. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that before Check Please, you know, sure, I'd read some kinky fic, whatever. But I was always like, yeah, this, I didn't really write that much sex. Per, like, it just took me a long time to get comfortable learning how to write about it, whatever. And I was never like, you know, oh, these characters feel this way. I was always like, oh, this author is importing their preferences onto these characters. Okay, well, I'll read it, whatever. And then I got into check plates and I was like, no, it's all hardcore fucking machines all the time. This is, I can't write these characters without writing about like erection pumps and like insane, I don't know, electro bullshit. Like, like cell popping, okay, this is where we are. I don't, like, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the point is that I do think it takes a while to get to that level of comfort with um, your desires. And Jacket 17 is probably not yet ready for, like, you know, 
uh, his permanent cock cage or whatever. Do you remember when we looked at that, like, cock cage website? <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> I feel like the sexual chemistry between Jack and Paris is probably something that fits better into the next trip. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to clarify that when I say butt sex will do that, it's not that I think that like these 17 year old hockey players are like having that much of it. Listen, but I love to read about it. So please feel free to bring me all of your like foot job cannons. Secret souls can have butt sex too, okay? All right, okay, here's the thing another phrase that gets picked up a lot in this fandom about this pairing rumors about their rumors. So yeah, they're gay. This is like really interesting phrasing because it speaks to many layers of speculation about them. And again, I think this goes into this sort of like, you know, gossip is bad. Like this is all very harmful. The rumors are bad. Um, So there aren't merely rumors, but there are so many rumors and so much speculation that many of the rumors are like not even based on Jack and Parse they're based on speculation about Jack and Pars. And this, again, is really interesting to me because, ironically, that's effectively what ended up happening to both this pairing and, like, their backstory and also Pars as a character, like, within Check Please fandom itself. Like, everything that we know about this guy comes from these three comic strips like another three comics for us that are spread out over the next two years of the story, and then like various little paratexts here and there. And a lot of those things don't even exist anymore because they've been sort of deleted or the link decayed or whatever. So almost everything that we know about Kent Parson is not so much like canonical information about Kent Parson, although there is a lot more of that than people who say he's unimportant tend to assert. However, it's like this entire industry of Kent Parson and Jack Parse fandom is effectively like an archaeology of fan production about these characters. And I just think that, like, rumors about their rumors is another shade of that process. And unlike the everybody's talking about Kent Parson, I don't think it's also, like, a sly little nod to what was happening in the fandom at the time. But it is interesting because it would be what does happen for the rest of the lifespan of this comic and this fandom. You use the term archaeology to talk about it, and I think that that's really, really useful. And it's also something that I believe. I also think there's like, t- sorry, everybody, that I'm like this, but to borrow um, a little bit of Derrida, there's this idea of like hauntology. We don't have to go that into it. And I'm sure I'll be talking about this more as I kind of like continue to think about um, the comic as we talk about it. But it's both this this unpacking and unearthing and this digging up of like who Kent Parson is in the strip and then how we as fans talked about him and then as things got deleted like how people talked about what people had already talked about so again rumors about the rumors there's also this sense of like traces of who Kent Parson is or was or could be in the comic 
we never get a lot of information about it. And so like the very, the many shades of Ken Parson, and I mean shade in like both the, you know, in every term, in every sense of the term, including the ghostly term, like there's all these different shades of Kent Parson kind of like throughout the whole comic where we, who he could be gets shaped by speculation about who he was supposed to be or who he could have been or who he was in the comic as he disappears from the comic. So it's like both an unearthing and also this like ethereal kind of like inescapable sense, I guess, over, for me anyway, over the rest of the comic. And all of that is fueled by by this collective memory of who he was. I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a sort of good, like, brief summary of what could be a much, much longer and more wider-ranging conversation about this in either the episode where we talk about the blog posts after the next episode, or if we decide to do just a standalone on this topic. But... All of that is effectively like the thesis mm-hmm. for the sort of hockey Draco project that I'm working on. I'd be lying if I said I was like super actively working on it right this second, but it's sort of like a, a longer term project that I've been I've been working on to kind of like um, exhibit and archive the collective memory of the character. And when I used sort of archaeology as a word, as like a framing device for this problem, I was not doing it not deliberately. Like it's a very valid use of the word archaeology. And I think it's very fitting that you pull in the word hauntology because so many different theories of memory effectively use basically like the principle of haunting or the principle of like specters or ghosts or whatever to effectively describe how concepts lodge themselves in corrective memory for generations. And something that I have noted elsewhere, both in unpublished meta I've written and in the, um, I don't know, like proposals I've written for the the larger like Kent Parson Collective Memory Project. I like the term genealogy. It's like different waves of fans have come into the fandom. It's like there's an initial group of people who were around the fandom, like when the tweets were made and when this strip was initially posted and they began constructing Kent Parson through fanfics, through meta posts, through, uh, I don't know, I hate the word squee, but basically like discourse, let's just say discourse. And those people left the fandom, but the kind of next generation of fans was privy to the materials and the discourse that they had produced And then on and on it sort of goes. And the way that Kent Parson was initially received around the time that like this strip was being produced continues to like live on and like linger in the fandom through like strata, like archeological strata that could be excavated. And I don't know, it's like, that's really compelling and it's really touching. And I think that like to talk about this in a, 
more in-depth way would be really interesting because I think it has a lot to do with the concept of loss, which I think is something that's going to become a really big deal when we talk about the next trip. Yeah, I, I also want to talk more about it. Also, everybody, Hockey Draco Project, I'm extremely excited about it. I'm going to make a game for it. It's going to be really good. Give your oral histories, please, at... Yeah, it's KP History at Tumblr. Look, I, I'm already at the end of these episodes. Like, follow me on 15 different Tumblrs. So I don't know. We'll talk about it later. But yeah, I, I mean, this is something that's like real. It's like real and it's serious. Like the fact that there is a giant discourse around this character that effectively like haunts the comic and indeed the comic also haunts the character and like like it, it, it's a real thing and it's interesting to look at this strip and sort of ask yourself well it is kind of like stumbling upon some sort of ruin in a way some like archaeological site where it's like well this is what's here this is what is visible that is here and you have a limited amount of information in the form of like facts given and like exposition given within the strip. And everything that's happened in fandom since is basically like fans trying to piece it back together in a way that makes sense to try to create a narrative. Only there isn't enough actual information there to create a narrative. So people have to start like pulling in other kinds of relative data and pulling in, I don't know, other sorts of paratext to try to like put it together. This frame of Jack holding the newspaper with a thought bubble of question marks while Parse gives him like this sort of kind almost look and puts a hand on Jack's shoulder is kind of like the er example of that because the looks on both of their faces and indeed what's actually happening in that scene is like completely inscrutable. And the look on Jack's face is, and I use this word intentionally, completely unparsable. It's like impossible to know what he is thinking, even though you are looking at an image of him thinking it and you see what's in his thought bubble, it's question marks. And it's like, well... What is he thinking? Is he thinking, I don't know which of us is going to go first in the draft? Is he thinking, oh, it's so unfair that this is happening? Is he thinking, ugh, I hate that this guy has his hand on my shoulder. Why won't he go away? It's like you could make all of these readings and it's just impossible to know. And it's like, even beyond that, is this supposed to be a representation of a concrete moment in time that canonically happened? Like these two boys specifically had a moment where they were sitting under a tree reading the newspaper and one of them touched the other one's shoulder. Or is it just sort of like, I don't know, this like fabulous, I don't know, almost like parable or almost like, I don't know, like, a, like an illustrated manuscript version of the kind of thing that might have happened. It's like completely impossible to know. And you can make a reading, but it's like, this is all we have. This is what we have about these two characters. And that's why this drives people crazy. But it's also like, this is why I'm sort of comparing it to an archaeological ruin, because like, you have the image and the image is very clear. It's very sharply well and well drawn. It exists right in front of us. I'm looking at it right fucking now. 
but we just don't have the context to put it into proper place with full certainty. That's what I'm trying to get at here about like why this shit drives people so fucking crazy who are into like Jack Parse or just Kent Parson in general. And I think it's really cleverly done. I don't know, but it's like, I don't know. What, what do you think he's thinking? Oh God, isn't that what I've been writing about for five years in one way or another? Yeah, kind of, kind of. I actually haven't written as much about Kent Parson as I would like to, so look out world. But I mean, I think that it's really, really hard to know. I think that when I first read this comic, I assumed Jack was like anxious about question marks, whatever they were, and Parse was kind of trying to comfort him, but but I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think that that's part of what makes this so, again, fanficable, is that it's readable in so many ways. And they're all coexisting in the same image. And they're all worthy of being explored, and the comic never resolves it. So it's just this, like, open... Ugh, I don't want to use the word wound, because that's gross. But, like, it's just this open wound full of ghosts. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do want to just briefly pop in again. Remember hockey conspiracy theory from back in the day where I was like, it's based on these people. This image of Kent Parson very clearly in Jack Zimmerman's lap while they're at a party drinking out of solo cups to me is like very obviously based on a semi-notorious image of Jonathan Taves and TJ Oshie in college where indeed this is precisely what happened. I don't think TJ Oshie and Jonathan Taves were secretly in love, probably. Like, that's none of my business. <laughs> but to me, this is just like a little more fodder for my semi-conspiracy theory slash maybe not so conspiracy that Ngozi was like very aware of Hockey RPF because that picture made the rounds in Hockey RPF to the point where like I saw it and knew about it even though I wasn't deep in Hockey RPF. It's a funny picture. You should look it up. They seem a lot less gay than Jack and Parse do, is all I have to say. It's just like the worst trucker hat situation. Oh, this picture is is really not very gay. It's like embarrassing 18-year-olds who are drunk at a party doing like rituals, rituals, you know what I mean? But, uh, but not the kind of ritual that means they're secretly having, you know, some kind of ear sex, you know, on the regular. If you ask me, I don't think TJ Yoshi and Jonathan Taves are in a secret relationship in 2008. Gonna go out on a limb here and just suggest that. Okay. We also learn that this image and perhaps others like it fueled a bunch of speculation in the form of like RPS fanfic. And um, I'm a little less excited about that than other people, but like, it is pretty horrifying if you think about it, when you find out that like, oh, these two guys actually were gay. Like, to be honest, this is like probably the most compelling case against RPS, which for the record, I am not against. I don't care about it at all. But like, probably the the best case against it is that, oh, if it turns out that like the people you're writing about actually are gay, then if they are in the closet for some reason, your writing it may exacerbate whatever that reason is. Yeah, I also am similarly sort of like, whatever, write about whatever you want, put it in places where people know what it is, you know, like <laughs> dead dub, do not eat or whatever. Um, just tell people what it is and let them avoid it if they wish. Uh, I don't know 
I'm excited about this because I love stories about fandom and I love thinking about like check pleases, characters, relationships to the internet because I think it could be really interesting. It's something I think a lot about. It's like not something that the comic deeply explores, but it's something I'm into. I also love writing about the internet and like other things that I do that are not fanfic. So, um, so, you know, that's just my particular prerogative. What I will say, and again, this is <laughs> broken record, like 3.0 or whatever, but I will suggest, like, what is the point of talking about Parse Zimmerman fanfic if Parse wasn't supposed to be important to Jack's story or important to the romance of the comic or somehow set, like, somehow set against what Jack eventually has with Biddy? It would be so easy not to mention it. Okay, hold on. My cat has a really noisy toy that you can maybe hear. So keep talking. I'll go retrieve that. I think that given the context of Check, Please more generally, if you wanted to make the case that Pars was never supposed to be important, I could see that this is just like a one-off joke or whatever. But I don't understand highlighting his relationship with Jack in this way. Like this particular comment in the context of the broader backstory being given, I just don't see how highlighting the fact that their rumors were so uh, so scintillating and amazing that they led to, and I quote, thousands of words of coffee shop verse, incomplete since 2010, or whatever, with a summary of things like, it's not that Jack wasn't into relationships, it's just that Jack wasn't a relationships kind of guy, which, you know, I buy it. Uh, that summary doesn't mean anything, seems correct, seems like the sort of thing you might find. Oh yeah, no, actually that's the best part, is that it's like, yeah, that is the kind of like, fanfic bullshit that somebody would put on a summary. It's like, what does that fucking mean? That's not a summary. That's not what a fanfic is about. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but anyway, I just don't think this, again, would, was like an effective choice. If the point was to not care about Kent Parson, you probably shouldn't mention fanfic about Kent Parson in the comic where you say everybody's talking about Kent Parson. Like that just doesn't seem like an effective strategy for making people not care about this guy. There's a good fanfic where Ransom and Holster like do dramatic readings of or like act out all of these fanfics. I've read that, I think. Yeah, it's good. Although I think actually the, it it was sort of like pre-revelation that Jack and Parse had dated. So the end of it, I think, is Jack basically saying like, no, we never dated. And then like, he leaves the room or something. But, um... Well, here's the fact, is that though, like, wouldn't, isn't that what he would say even if they had dated? Like, seems still like a thing he might do. Yes, but I think in an actual fanfic being written like on AO3 in our world, that's not the choice the author would make. Yeah, probably true. Anyway, um, so this conversation about who is Ken Parson, um, I always thought that Ransom and Holster were telling this to Biddy. And it's only on this read-through, for some reason, that I realized that it's Ransom and Holster talking to March, April, and Chowder. And that, in fact, you can see, like, the outline or, like, little bits of Ransom and Holster in the foreground of the panel where it's reversed and you can see March, April, and Chowder. I kind of think that who's telling this story and who's hearing it is kind of irrelevant. Although, of course, it is fitting that Ransom and Holster, who know all about hockey and do the hockey shit, um, do the hockey shit comics for the people who are giving this background. I think that's, you know, kind of in, in keeping with the comic, but like it, 
sort of doesn't matter. And in fact, to that point, like, who is saying what when it's just a voiceover? You, you almost can't tell, like, who is talking where, who is actually saying what. So it's, like, almost irrelevant. And just to throw in here, those two women I keep mentioning, March and April, they are never seen again. March is mentioned, I think, one more time. And I think throughout year three, Biddy tweets that, like, Ransom is dating or having sex with or something, March. But, like, these characters just vanish and they're never, never seen ever again. I'd always presumed that Biddy had been part of this conversation, but apparently not. Like, it, it seems as though he isn't. So, like, does he know any of this? Like, does he actually end up getting, like, this information about Kent Parson? Or does he already know who Kent Parson is and he just, like, doesn't get the specific context on Jack? He clearly knows who Kent Parson is because of getting starstruck. I don't know how much of this background he knows. I assume he must learn some of it at some point. I too always assumed that Biddy was getting this information. And in fact, we don't know that he's not getting this information, although it does seem important that he's like not in the panel, but I don't know. I don't know. I think with your commentary earlier in this episode that Biddy's appropriateness for Jack as a partner is because of what he doesn't know. It's very possible he doesn't know any of this and only ever gets it through Jack's perspective. So then I think for non-US listeners, it's worth noting that um, tub juice is alcohol punch that's been mixed in a bathtub. So it's like probably handles of something really cheap, like green alcohol or maybe Everclear, and then some sort of like chemically juice drink like Kool-Aid or maybe like Weiler's or Flavor-Aid. And basically it'll get you like really fucked up because the chemically kind of like Kool-Aid, like fake juice is like very chemically potent and green alcohol is like relatively neutral flavored. So it just basically is like a very fast, very cheap way to produce like quantities of like highly drinkable, very potent booze and it'll get you fucked up like in short order. It's not always made in a bathtub. Sometimes it's made like straight in one of those um, coolers, like what you see in the panel in this strip. I think it's like they made it in the bathtub and then they like took it downstairs in the cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying that I have seen people make it not only in the bathtub. I think I've, I've also seen people like in real life make it in like these coolers with like fucking hose water. Like it's gross. This particular version of it appears to have like a little ladle in it or something but I have seen tub juice where people just stick cups straight in it like with their hands it's disgusting you should not drink it probably yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't call it tub juice unless it was made in a bathtub I would just call it like punch or just like at my university sometimes they called it jungle juice that was a common name yeah I I have heard that as well but in any case, it's the worst possible version of a mixed drink that exists on planet Earth. And college students uh, get alcohol poisoning it from it all the time. Yeah, and you can, you can see in that cooler that it's like neon green. It's because it's basically just like packets of like, you know, lime flavored Kool-Aid like dumped into like bathtub water and like alcohol. the cheap possible booze. Speaking of tub juice, there's this whole conversation with shitty... So the specifics that Shitty lays out, it's kind of difficult to like work out this whole timeline, but I'm pretty sure Parse's previous visit would have been 
in 2012 because he says, or rather Biddy tweets at one point that Holster says that Parse remembered his major from the last time that he visited. So if he met Holster, that would have been during Jack's sophomore year, because of course we saw all of the junior year and Parse didn't show up. So it had to have been 2012-2013. Otherwise, it's like the barest outline of backstory. So uh, we get this anecdote that again, feels really concrete, but then when you look at it like much more closely, it's like kind of vague and really murky about Jack's treatment of Parse on that earlier visit. So I think the main point of this is that it points towards something that's basically uninvestigated in like the actual comic as it stands because this thread is never really picked up again anywhere and Jack never really acts this way ever again. But yeah, I mean, if I were Biddy and I'd just been told this story by someone who I trusted and someone who I understood to be one of Jack's intimates, then I overheard what happens in part three I would probably assume that Jack had done something to deserve the chewing out he ends up getting. And then, I don't know. I mean, there's so many fucking ways you can interpret this. Like, I think this is something that ends up compounding my reading of Parse 3. So I think perhaps I'll talk about it a little bit more there. But I mean, I don't know. It's like, we never see Jack acting jealous ever again after this, to be honest. So the fact that it's introduced and then summarily dropped, I think is part of why I feel like we have a story here that's just basically like untold. Right, and I think depending on what weight you give this comment, you get very different readings of parts three, which we'll get into, and you get very different fan reactions. I'll also just briefly mention for the last time that this sets Biddy and Kent in parallel again with their relationship to Jack in a more palindromic sense. Kent and Jack were very close, then Jack was an asshole to Kent, Jack was an asshole to Biddy, and then Biddy and Jack become closer. So there's just this like narrative arc sense happening there to me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the most base reading, like the most basic reading is basically like, oh, Jack treated him how he treats you. That means that he feels similarly, which is to say romantically, but... I think we should pick this thread up when we talk about parse three, because that's where sort of like all of this comes to the fore. But I don't know. It's like, you give this backstory to shitty. Why? Well, I guess there's very few characters who are in the comic at this point who would have observed something like this. I guess you could have given it to Lardo, but of course, Biddy and Lardo have no rapport. So hearing it from Lardo doesn't mean the same as it would coming from shitty. But it's also like Shitty is known to be an intimate and he's the person who has in the past excused Jack's behavior. And like a huge number of people have made this point. This is not a new point that when Jack was treating Biddy badly at the beginning of year one, Shitty was very quick to sort of like explain and excuse it. But however Jack treated Parse, like left such an impression on him that he feels like he needs to warn Biddy about it. And then I guess where I end up thinking through what's happened in this strip is kind of like, what's the timeline on it? 
So something that I'm like really fucking fascinated by that I've never seen anybody think out is like what happens immediately after Parse approaches Jack and Biddy. So we don't see that. We just see, you know, did you miss me and fade to black and then we cut in and it's Ransom and Holster telling three other people backstory about Kent Parson. Like what happens when Parse says, did you miss me? And he walks up. Does Jack immediately say no and he like leaves and goes upstairs? How long do they stand there talking for if not? Is Biddy the person who walks away from that exchange? Like, I'm just fascinated by what happens. Like, do Jack and Parse exchange words and Biddy stands there, like, listening to them have an awkward exchange for a minute? Like, it's obvious that Biddy and Parse end up talking at some point because he tells Shitty that he heard Parse say that he came specifically to see Jack. So, like, they had to have had some kind of interaction, but... I'm just kind of surprised by how, like, this one weird moment has never been exploited or explored by anybody. My other sort of question is, like, what happened? Like, at some point, Jack goes upstairs to his room, and Biddy starts looking for him, but then it's like, how long could Biddy possibly have been looking for him? Like, the house is not that large, and he must know that, like, Jack usually is upstairs during parties and only came downstairs, like, much to everybody's surprise. So the fact that Biddy is still looking downstairs and hasn't even, like, gone to check upstairs yet kind of indicates that he probably hasn't been looking for that long. So it's just interesting to sort of imagine, like, what happened at this party? Like, how much time must have elapsed for Parse to have ended up, like, taking a bunch of selfies and playing a bunch of flip cup and Jack is missing, and Biddy is looking for him. It's possible that, like, according to the Twitter, this all happens over, like, a 10-minute period. But it's just, like, I would love to fucking know, like, what happens after Parse 1, like, ends. I don't know. I had always assumed that they, like, talked for a little bit. Parse gets pulled aside by somebody who wants a selfie. Biddy gets distracted by the selfie parade and then Jack gets jealous and like stomps upstairs. This was always my assumption about what happened, but obviously we don't see it. Write some fanfic, send it to us. Why not? So if anyone's keeping track, we're looking for teenage Jack Parr's foot job. We're looking for moments immediately after Did You Miss Me? What else? Throw some weird shit in there somewhere and uh, just send it our way. Fucking in the tub juice? Why not? Just tell us how it goes. Oh, Ugh. Dicky, I hate that idea. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into that either. What a weird strip. What a weird strip. It is weird, and it's completely intoxicating to me still. Like, just looking at it again makes me go like, oh, oh, it's so interesting. There's so much happening here. Well, it's like there's two completely different things happening in this story that only sort of loosely fit together. The first half of it is all this like backstory that is being narrated by side characters. And then the second half of it is this very pointed exchange between Biddy and Shitty on the porch. I mean, I think that's in part why we have to understand the first half as breaking the fourth wall in a kind of narrative sense, right? We need that information in order to understand why any of this matters but narratively doesn't fit together in a smooth way. 
but I think that's okay. I mean, I'm okay with the fact that it's kind of jagged. I think it makes it really interesting. It's like part of why I want to sink my teeth into this strip. So last really quick question, if indeed it's possible to answer this really quickly. If parse isn't important and none of this matters, why is all of this in the comic? I guess the answer is it shows us something about Jack. And we know that Jack's important because he marries the main character. So I guess it's to show us that Jack, who isn't in this strip, matters. What do you think? Well, maybe this is a good place to leave off. I think it's a trick question. The story was changed. It was introduced because it was going to matter. Oh, well, yeah, that's my real answer, obviously. Agreed. Ken Parson, listen, listen, listen. Everybody, I know I complain about this comic, and I know sometimes I'm like, ugh, things about art aren't good. But we have also said again and again that Ngozi is an effective visual storyteller and often writes things that are, that are compelling in some way. There's no way that this character wasn't meant to be important if you have ever read any narrative ever in your whole life. There's just no way. Well, here's the thing. If you take what Check, Please ended up being, that is not the potential for what we thought Check, Please was possibly going to be while we were reading it as it was being produced, but the final product that we got that's like printed in two volumes by first second, this arc is evidence of bad storytelling because it goes nowhere and it means nothing. So it's just like, we get some Jack and Biddy character building in the first strip, but otherwise you could have used this arc to do any number of things that would have been much more relevant to the story that ultimately was told. But we'll have to pick that up. Final thoughts? I'm very excited about Parse 3. Next time. 2.9, parse part three. I've been secret and you can follow me and my fucking hoopla at Camillar, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr or I'm familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. You can find our podcast on checkdisplease.tumblr.com, on Podbean, and on Spotify. Bye! Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.